Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. Now, we will be uh, studying for the next long time the Gospel of John. Tonight we're going to be looking at chapter 1, and as I've been preparing this, uh, this message, there are so many different things that could be said, and I want to try to focus our attention tonight. I think that we're going to leave a lot of stuff that you guys can go home and explore on your own, or you can shoot me a text, or you can ask questions, that sort of stuff, but tonight we're going to try to be focused in our, in our approach here. This is John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. The word of God for the people of God. So many of you know that a couple weeks ago, at the end of my mini sabbatical, I decided to go to upstate New York to spend some time with the monks. I went to a monastery for a silent retreat. I don't know if you know a lot about monasteries, but basically what happens is these monks have dedicated their entire lives to serving within this particular community. They take a few vows that, that allow them entrance into this place. Um, little known fact, they don't take a vow of silence. However, they only speak when it is absolutely necessary. 
necessary. If you catch yourself throughout the day, a lot of times we just kind of talk and talk and talk to fill the silence. They don't necessarily do that. However, they only speak when it is important to speak. But for those of us, the 15 of us that were living in this house, away from the monastery that would attempt to observe the, the, the routines of the monks, we were observing silence. And at 3.30 a.m., 6.30 a.m., noon, 5.30 p.m., and 7.30 p.m., we would all kind of march a half a mile down the street and go into the monastery chapel. We would sit there very reverently, and then the monks would come out and guide us in some hymns. They would chant, actually, the psalms. They would also sing hymns that nobody knew what they were singing, so we would just kind of sit there like we were... We had no idea what was going on. And then they would engage in this psalm chant where these three or four people would begin the psalm and they would sing it. And we would have to match the pitch and the harmony and whatever. And then we would sing it back to them. And we would do this five times a day. I only went to the 3.30 a.m. service once. It was by far the longest service of the day, little known fact. The monks like to get up and get going and they really kick in the day with a handful of psalms. You know what I'm saying? You guys know. So as I'm there, I'm being silent and I feel myself being super rude because we're eating in silence and there's like 15 people in the room and I'd like to just to say to them, even being the introvert that I am, hey, what are you doing here? Why, why are you here to observe silence? Why are you here to sing these psalms with the monks? What, what brings you into this space? But you can't do that. You just sit there and you eat your egg salad or your tuna salad. The monks love uh, mayonnaise-based salads. I don't know if you knew that as well. But you'd be eating these sandwiches and just kind of be like sitting across from one another. You do a lot of this. The very reverent head nod just to let people know that you see them. But I found myself in this time getting bored. Can you imagine this? I'm getting bored because there's only bad pastor confession. There's only so much praying you can do in the course of a day. And I found myself wanting some form of entertainment. I found myself on the, on the deck of the house, reading a book, saying to myself, you know what? There's a coffee shop three miles down the street. Why don't I just hop in my car and read my book in the coffee shop? I needed a latte. You know what I'm talking about. So I go over there and I start reading these books, but I also found that I needed some form of entertainment. I was very bad at silent retreating, okay? Uh, I will be better, though. But I found myself wanting some, sort of, some form of um, leisure. So I bought a book, an autobiography, about a monk named Thomas Merton, who you see before you. The book is called The Seven-Story Mountain. And every night uh, while I was there, from about 8 till 9, when I fell asleep, I would be reading this autobiography about a monk for my, uh, my leisure time. But in this book, this is all one big build-up to something that's not really tied in. I just kind of wanted to tell you about my time with the monks. He's talking about this book. It's actually his publisher who's talking about this book. And he says when they, when they got the first copy, this is a huge bestseller, um, perennial bestseller, actually. Uh, they said that his first words of the book were so dry and so boring that nobody would have continued on to read what was a really good spiritual reflection about why this normal guy who graduated from Columbia University becomes a monk and dedicates his entire life to this monastery in Kentucky. They said that his first words were so bad that no one would have continued on to read this book, which gets me thinking about some of the most important or most eloquent first words of books that we have been exposed to perhaps in our life. I actually went to Facebook to try to get some, some response. I'll have you know that I had made this, uh, this slideshow before any of you responded, but I was happy to know that a handful of your responses have made their way back onto the screen 
scene as you see before you. I don't know if this is something that brings back a remembrance from your childhood, but the line is, where's Papa going with that axe? said Fern to her mother as they were setting the table for breakfast. Anybody remember the book? Charlotte's Web. You remember these first lines as it introduces the story that is to unfold. The night Max wore his wolf suit and made mischief of one kind, turn the page, and another, his mother called him Wild Thing, and Max said, I'll eat you up. So she sent him off into his room with no dinner. This is from the book Where the Wild Things Are, which I have a bad dad confession for you. I don't really like this book. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't get it. I don't, I don't know. It's, maybe it's just because I'm so calm and I, I'm not, I've never wanted to have a wild rompus uh, to happen on my watch. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four Privet Drive were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone or the Philosopher's Stone, depending on how hardcore you want to be. We also have these, these lines that are uh, completely immortal. Call me Ishmael from Moby Dick. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Dickens from A Tale of Two Cities. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. So says Jane Austen in Pride and Prejudice. One of my... Uh, favorite opening lines, I guess if you could say that, is I am an invisible man. No, I am not a spook like those who haunted Edgar Allan Poe, nor am I one of your Hollywood movie ectoplasms. I have a man, I'm a man of substance, of flesh and bone, fiber and liquids, and I might even be said to possess a mind. I am invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. Ralph Ellison from Invisible man set within a tumultuous time in our nation's history. And here we can set the author of the book of John with his words. In the beginning was the word. He's setting up this entire story, this beautiful gospel narrative about the life and the death and the resurrection and the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus and how he ministers to people that you would not expect. The book of John is very, very, very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke and how it presents Jesus and the things that it wants to um, explain and to explicate to its readers. But it begins in this most beautiful way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It launches into these 18 verses that don't really seem at first glance connected to the rest of the story because the author is taking on this note of poetry. This author is taking on this note of hymnody. In fact, some people would say that it's so dissimilar from the rest of the gospel that it might have been borrowed as an early Christian hymn that the author adopts and brings into play here. I don't know if in our initial reading it was odd to you that there were those little... Um, tidbits about John in this poem. If you go home tonight and reread John 1, 1 through 18, and you can see those little tidbits about John the Baptist as somewhat strange, almost intruding into the poetry that you see laid out here. But what John, as the author, is attempting to do is to set the entire framework for what this book is about. In fact, one scholar whose name is Craig Keener says, if any given passage in the gospel is of special import, it is the prologue, this uh, section that we have just read. As 
as the introduction to the whole work. It shapes the expectations with which a reader will approach the gospel as a whole. These lines, these first lines of these books, of these works of fiction, also in the, in the gospel here, they're important because they set the trajectory for the entire story. It lets the readers know, in a sense, what is to come, what is being unfolded here in this narrative, especially within the gospel of John, because as another scholar, uh, Marianne May Thompson says, it constitutes a prose introduction to many of the major themes and much of the imagery of the gospel. She can identify a handful of different things that come to play in these 18 verses, things like the coming of the light into the darkness, the consequent rejection of the light, the importance of witnesses, namely why John the Baptist is actually important, what he's attempting to do. It says he's not the light. He's being a witness to the light so that other people will believe in the light. There's a call to believe in the name of Jesus. There's a call for people to believe. There's also... um, Within this passage, the relationship of Moses and Torah is is demonstrated as a bit less than compared to Jesus. In a sense, he trumps Moses. He becomes the Torah. And we also see Jesus' identity as Messiah and as the unique son of the Father. All of these themes are embedded within the first 18 verses. And perhaps now you can see that in a hopefully half an hour long sermon, I cannot adequately unpack all all of these to you. I bet you can also see that some of these topics are so ethereal and philosophical. We're talking about the light and the darkness and Jesus as the true light. There's a lot of of things that are happening in this uh, initial section that would take some time for us to unpack. One final scholar says, much of the content of the prologue, it had familiar resonances for the gospel's first readers. As we sit here in the 21st century, as Americans reading this passage, we seem as though we are at a distance. We might not necessarily understand all of the things that the author is attempting to convey to us because we are not embedded within this first century Jewish culture. However, for the ancient readers... They would have been on the edge of their seat to understand that John was doing a new thing with a lot of their accepted images and motifs. It had familiar resonances for the gospel's first readers, but none of it would have been familiar in this form. It is familiar, but it is also distinct because Jesus This is really at the core of the entire New Testament. These documents don't come out of nowhere. These documents are written by people entrenched within a Jewish religious system that are not just turning their back on that. They are using a lot of the language in the Old Testament to explain who Jesus actually is. And they can only do that in hindsight. They can only begin to explain this as they themselves have seen the death and the resurrection and Jesus appearing to these people after the resurrection. They can only begin to describe the gravity of what Jesus has done in light of the story. They can only look back and begin to make sense of what Jesus has done as they have seen it unfold. But these things, they are familiar, but they are also distinct because Jesus has completely redefined what they are. 
I want to give just, I believe, three examples this evening of how this works out in the Gospel of John, how John is redefining some of these Jewish ideas through the lens of Jesus. He begins his Gospel in a familiar way. For an ancient reader, they would have heard this. In the beginning. Even a literate uh, Bible reader in the 21st century might hear resonances of an older story in the book of Genesis. John, the author, is tipping his cap to this. It's the same language in this Greek New Testament as it is in the Greek Old Testament, NRK. The same two words that begin Genesis also begin John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Scholars have spilled all sorts of ink to try to explain what in the world is going on with regard to the word. They've looked at a a philosophical system called Gnosticism that doesn't seem to be a great fit. They've looked at Stoicism and Greek philosophy. They've looked at um, Hellenized uh, Jewish understandings of what's going on. But most people would say that there's an underlying resonance with the Old Testament that John is going beyond here. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, there's a link, a modified link between the word and wisdom. These two concepts that are related to to God and to God's early creation. Now, one text, and I know that this is going to be super nerdy, so just stick with me for a moment. I think there's some payoff. I hope there's some payoff. But we're going to look tonight at the book of Sirach, chapter 24. You guys know some Sirach that's been in your devotions of late, perhaps? No? Okay, this is from an intertestamental book. That means it's, it's set between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in the intertestamental period, there was books that were being written, which are important for us because it shows us how Jewish people were thinking about the world at this time. And in this book of Sirach, it says, Before the ages, in the beginning, he created me. This is in the midst of a personification of wisdom. It says that God creates me, wisdom, And for all the ages, I shall not cease to be. First century Jews would have understood wisdom in this context as sort of like the handmaiden of God in the creative activity early on. This doesn't just show up, though, in Sirach. This also shows up in the Old Testament in the book of Proverbs. The Lord brought me, that is wisdom, forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. It says, I was formed long ages ago at the very beginning when the world came to be, when there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, wisdom is saying that she was born as she was one of the first created entities that was with God before anything else. Jews have also gone beyond this. It's not just wisdom, but it's also Torah. It's the very word of God that is with God before anything else was created. And this is underlying what John is saying in the beginning of his book. 
We can see this from Sirach and Proverbs and these other places. There's also another link between the word and wisdom. If you continue on in Proverbs chapter 8, it says, I, wisdom, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out its foundations of the earth. I was there, wisdom, I was there when God was creating everything. I was with him in the beginning of this. I was the first created entity, and I was creating with God. This is the personification that we see in Proverbs chapter 8. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in mankind. Another book in the intertestamental period, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, is important for our Jewish understanding of that's happening right now. This is from the Wisdom of Solomon. This is not a book that we accept in our Bible. This is a book in the Roman Catholic Bible, if you're interested. Wisdom, uh, so is Sirach. Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 9, says, O God of my ancestors and Lord of mercy, who have made all things by your word and by your wisdom have formed humankind. God, when he is creating, wisdom is present and wisdom is the agent of this creation. Earlier in Wisdom, chapter 7, it says, I learned both what is secret and what is manifest, for wisdom is the fashioner of all things. Wisdom is the creator of all things. This Jewish mindset of wisdom being with God in the beginning, perhaps created before anything else, and then establishing or being the active agent in the creative process is important because in the book of John, he starts picking up on the same language. The word was with God in the beginning and through him, through the word, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. It's familiar. They would have said, this sounds right, but there's something different going on here because wisdom isn't cited, but also the, the thing that's being cited is different. In the beginning was the Word. There's no creation that's being talked about. It doesn't say that the Word was the first created entity of God. It just says that the Word was present. In the beginning was. It just was, it was a foregone conclusion. The Word was. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word itself had divine properties. Whatever God was, the Word was. And the Word is the one who is doing this creative work. It's familiar, but it's different. Jesus has completely transformed what is going on, and John, the author, is tapping into these old, old images and old metaphors and old motifs and saying, but guys, now Jesus is different. Jesus is better. Jesus has fulfilled it all. It's not wisdom created a long time ago, but Jesus has been forever. This is noting the pre-existence of Jesus. He was not created. He was eternal with God. This is a claim that only John seems to be making in the New Testament with this much force, but this is how he's beginning the gospel. Jesus is completely different. In fact, Jesus is God. 
Again, Craig Keener says, John is utilizing the closest concept that's available from his milieu. Sounds super fancy. But he's modifying it to fit his Christology, the things that he's saying about Jesus. He has this image, and he is a, he's appropriating it for Jesus, but it doesn't quite fit because Jesus is better. Jesus is different. Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was creating on God's behalf. Jesus as the agent of creation. For an ancient reader, these things would have come off the page, and they would have had to stop and say, what in the world is going on? Now I know it's Sunday evening. Some of you guys are thinking about school tomorrow. Some of you guys are thinking about work tomorrow. I'm up here talking about Sirach and the wisdom of Solomon, and you're saying, what gives, Josh? Let's go somewhere with this, okay? I'll try to get you there. But we see that this sort of underlying um, motif of the Old Testament is coming to the fore here. And we also see how John is beginning to describe Jesus. And I hope that this is something that might land more with you. It's not just the fact that he's tapping into these really old, ancient, philosophical sort of categories to describe who Jesus is. But he goes on. The word was God. The word was creating. These are things that are happening before, in a sense, the world came to be. But then we get to one of the climaxes of this passage. The word who is Jesus, who is eternal, who is God, who is a representation of God, who is creating for God. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I've got the Greek up there because it looks fancy, one, and two, because it actually means something, because what the author is doing is saying, Jesus is not like the tabernacle. This verb is, is a verb for tabernacling. Jesus is making his dwelling. He is setting up his tabernacle. The author is taking some of this Old Testament motif and imagery and saying, Jesus is better than the tabernacle. And in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the place that sort of... Uh, encompassed God's presence with his people. And what John is saying here is Jesus is becoming the lived reality of the presence of God. Jesus is here. He's taking on flesh. It says in other places in the New Testament that Jesus knows where you are, that Jesus knows what you have been through because Jesus has lived it out. Jesus understands our suffering, our brokenness, our hurt. Jesus understands rejection and pain. Jesus understands these things because he has become enfleshed. He did not just live with God in all of eternity. He becomes Jesus. He becomes a person. He becomes human. He becomes one who takes on flesh for us, and he begins to make his dwelling among us so that we could be the benefactors of this. The ancient author taking on some of this Old Testament imagery that Jesus is tabernacling with us. But this is where it gets interesting because it says he came to that which was his own. He came to the people that he created. He came to the people that should have known him, but these people did not know him. It says he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. In fact, they reject who he is. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
Third and final, we've seen Jesus as the better version of wisdom because Jesus was not created, yet Jesus was eternal and Jesus was creating on God's behalf. Jesus is the better tabernacle. He shows that the presence of God can be with his people. Jesus understands where you've been, where you're going, what you've been through, and Jesus is, has set up shop here in a sense to bring about solidarity with you, but also to win our salvation. He has become the better uh, image of the presence of God. And here it says that because of Jesus, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. In the Jewish mindset of this time, there was a belief that through God and through God renewing the spirit of all humankind, particularly when God is renewing the spirit of his people, Israel, that they would become the children of God. They were awaiting this climactic moment when God would set everything to rights and that relationships would be restored and that people could become children of God. But what the author of John does that's so important for us as we sit here, it says, yet to those who did, who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God, the author seems to be going beyond Israel. The author seems to be going beyond just the Jewish believers of this time and cracking open the door to allow us to become sons and daughters of the Most High God through our belief in Jesus. This at the core is the good news of the gospel, that what Jesus has brought about for us and what Jesus has won on our behalf, it allows us to experience something different. It allows us to experience something that we could not force for ourselves. It's not children born of natural descent or of human decision or husband's will, but we are born of God. And in so doing, we become children of God. In the beginning, it says, was the word. And with this, it launches into a theologically dense poem that attempts to show all of the different images that we will see in this book. In the beginning was the word. For us, there's a catch-22 here because it's not enough for us to recognize the individual words or phrases of the prologue. We must interpret them in the new context that's created by the book of John, and we can understand what that context is only when we have worked through the whole prologue and the whole gospel. Tonight, in these first 18 verses, which there again has been a lot left on the table for us to examine, for us to explore, for us to dig our heels in and try to figure out what in the world is going on, some really beautiful images that, that are compelling us to who Jesus is. The only way that we will understand them to the full is by diving in and attempting to wrap our brains around what is going on in this book of John that is so dissimilar from the others, and he will help us to understand what it means that Jesus is the true light. He will help us to understand the importance of John the Baptist's witness to the light. He will help us to understand what it means to believe in the name of Jesus. He will help us to understand what it means for us to become children of the Most High God. However, as we sit here this evening, I don't want to leave you without hope. For some of you in this place, you do not feel as though you are part of the family. You do not feel as though you are welcomed 
into the family of God, you might not feel as though you're welcomed into your own natural family, but in this text, there's, there's a, a, a glimmer of hope to all that have believed in him, to all that have trusted in his name. He gives us the power, the authority even, to become children of God. I don't know where you guys are. I don't know where you have been. I don't know what you bring with you into this place. But my hope is that with all of that baggage, that you can hear that you are still wanted as a son or daughter. I know that in my own life, at times, the pressures of being a good parent, the pressures of being a good husband, the pressures of being a good pastor, the pressures of being present for you guys, the pressures of being whatever, and the way that I fail in each and every one of those categories moves me farther away from this identity that I have in Jesus. And at times, it's important for us to come back to our tethering point knowing yet again that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. If we're following with Jesus, hopefully knowing that there is still room for us at the table, that there is still a way in which we can serve him and love him and follow him. If you guys need to come back to the tethering point tonight, hear these words from the Gospel of John. Yet to all who believed in his name, he has given the right to become the children of God, and that is who we are. Jesus is completely dissimilar from these other categories that we see the author explicating. He is different than wisdom. He is better than wisdom. He is different than Moses. He is better than Moses. He's different than the tabernacle. He's better than the tabernacle. And he allows us to have life and hope. And my prayer this evening is that we will attach ourselves to that, that we will cling to that, and that we will live differently because of it. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.